or we're really looking at market growth and opportunities to position ourselves ahead of adult use, which you know we absolutely feel like we're an industry leader on. But we're also industry leading on things that people can't necessarily see right now. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Aaron Miles, Chief Investment Officer of Verano. Aaron, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks, guys, for having me. Really looking forward to it. Excited diving. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Really excited to talk to Aaron. Really excited to learn about Verano and their footprint across the, the U.S. markets. Uh, specifically, uh, where, Kellen? And I think for the record, Aaron, we've got a little East Coast, West Coast battle. So I'm kind of leading into it. So your location, Aaron, please. So we're uh, based in Chicago. Uh, Illinois was the first state uh, we want to license in. And I, you know, I'm sure you've heard this from other operators from the state. But you know, I think there's a reason why Illinois is considered, especially Chicago, is considered to be the mecca of cannabis. It's you know, it was really hard to get licensing here. And then, you know, the regulations that were put in place were, were pretty stringent. So when you think about expanding your portfolio to go from, say, like a California into a very strict state is a little bit of a challenge. And, you know, for us, we really used Illinois uh, as the base that we wanted to grow. And so for now, we have a 14-state footprint. You know, we're active in 13 states. And, uh, you know, we have, uh, you know, over 120 dispensaries, over a million square feet of cultivation. And so really happy with what we've built and looking to continue to expand. But um, I'll tell you, from, from the get-go, I really think the biggest thing that has separated a Verano from the rest of the pack has really been the mindset that we came to market with. And it started with George Arcos, our CEO and our founder. He had an operator mindset. So when you think about winning a license, like, you know, that was the challenge for most people, but then really figuring out how to run the business was the biggest challenge. Like, how do I deal with a contractor? How do I deal with vendors? How do I negotiate contracts? And George had that all down pat. So the biggest challenge for us was getting the license. And then it was just off to the races. So he knew he could make money in this space. And, and you know, he's been very careful with the way that we've grown in a, in a highly and rapidly uh, evolving industry. And so... I think the, the the efficient and methodical way that we've gotten to the point that we're at right now really shows up in you know the capital that we've raised, the lack of sale leasebacks, and really the margin profile that we've been able to put out. Let's dive deeper into those statistics because I really think like it's hard for people to understand how challenging of an environment that is to operate in. So Verano's portfolio encompasses 14 U.S. states, 13 active operations, 14 production facilities comprises over a million square feet of cultivation, just like on a macro land point. How many different companies is that realistically running from a state-by-state state Because every state operates completely differently. And you've got different challenges. So how complex is that to oversee an operation of that magnitude? As complex as it can get. And you know, a lot of times people will try to liken us to the, the alcohol and the beverage industry. And it's it's not an apples to apples because you know they'll have regional distribution, you know, hubs and everything else. Everything we operate in in a business has to be produced in that state. So now here you are, you're trying to build a national brand. You're trying to build product that is consistent across this footprint. And oh, by the way, you have to do it on a state-by-state basis. And so for us, our million square feet, you know, 14 cultivation facilities, all of them look and feel a lot of uh, very similar. The way that you know, the, the, the operations flow and, and to get to the final output. And so, you know, for us, the challenges are, are unprecedented. But, you know, now let's go back to my initial comments of, of really when you start in a state like Illinois and you're building that framework and that blueprint for how you want to build a vertical integration in the state, you can now take that blueprint and start to layer it on state by state. Now, where the challenges come in is it's, you know, there's certain restrictions, you know, where you can only have so many dispensaries and so much cultivation in each state. And, you know, the regulation in each state is different. It's indications of what would qualify for a medical program, what products are allowed. Some, you know, like, you know, uh, companies or some states don't allow for chocolate. Some do. Some allow for gummies. Some don't. In, in how you, you know, there's zero marketing and advertising in each of these states. So, you know, I think that's the challenge is how do you build a consistent brand when you can't actually have the same product portfolio in every state? Now, on the inverse of that, it also creates a lot of opportunity for us because we can solicit a lot of feedback on a state-by-state basis. What's working in Maryland, we can potentially implement in an, in an Illinois versus, you know, what, you know, what you're going to implement in other states. So for us, very proud of the 13 active states. Now, the focus is on a limited license, vertically integrated perspective. We do not 
you know, uh, acquire assets just to, you know, beef up the map slide to show, you know, how many, how big our footprint actually is. We are all about profitability and making sure that we're driving the high, highest margin profile we can. And how you do that is you have to be a very efficient operator. We started with the mindset of a very premium, high quality product. And then as the market tastes have, have you know, transitioned and, be, and evolved and become more complex, we've been able to evolve our product portfolio as well. So, I mean, it is probably a level 10 out of 10 uh, complex challenge. But um, I think when you look at the results that we've been able to put up, I think, you know, you, you can see that we're meeting those challenges head on. Is there a certain stage that you guys chose to expand just based on strict regulatory framework that they had in place? Yeah, every state that we operate in, we have the appropriate footprint that we need at this current time, right? And if you look at, um, you know, Illinois... You know, I could go, you know, state by state by state, but, you know, you look at in Illinois, you know, we built out ahead of the January 1, 2020 adult use turnout. And then as the 185 dispensaries are potentially coming online and you can see like, this is the biggest challenge. Like, you know, I'm sorry, let's go back to the biggest challenge. It's not about creating a national brand and a footprint. It's dealing with regulators because when you look at a state like Illinois, they issued the 185 dispensary licenses how long ago? Well, those are 185 new doors that we can sell into. But what you don't want to do as an operator is build out your cultivation facility, bring all this supply into market, waiting for these 185 doors to open because you're going to flood the market and the pricing is going to come down. So for us, the challenge is trying to figure out when that growth is going to happen. So as of right now, the 14 cultivation facilities, the million square feet, allow us to be a leader in every state that we operate in. I'm not saying we're the number one slot, but we have the ability to put the appropriate supply ahead of the growth potential in those markets. Now, states like Florida, uh, you know, at 22 million people, 100 plus million, you know, uh, tourists a year, there's a massive opportunity there of adult use turns on. So we have a 220,000 square foot cultivation facility by Tampa. We have another 42,000 square foot facility by Jacksonville. And we can expand that by hundreds of thousands of feet. Well, you don't want to do that until you really have a good idea of what that growth is going to look like. So we were investing in Florida. We're going to continue down the you know opening of dispensary um, you know path there because Florida operates a little different. You know, it's it's, it's it, you can't wholesale in that market. So what you grow, you have to sell in your dispensaries. You have to make sure that you're going to have the appropriate amount of uh, supply to go into those markets. So I think we're good in Florida, but you know if adult use starts to pick up some steam. We're going to invest in that market. PA was another market that we were investing in. We have a 62,000 square foot cultivation facility, 15 dispensaries that are currently open. We can open up three more. And we were building out a second cultivation facility ahead of an anticipated adult use turnout. Well, that slowed, although Shapiro, uh, from a governor perspective, Fetterman gets you know into the Senate. They're very pro-cannabis. You might see some momentum pick up around adult use turning on. You know, again, if that happens, then we have the ability to self-fund a lot of the capex that we've been that we've been building out. And so, what we want people to understand when you look at cash flow, you know, people are going to want to run for us to run that at least initially, initially as as close to zero as we can because those are dollars that are being invested back in our capacity ability. So, PA is a market that we're focused on, but we've pulled back on. Florida is a market that you know we're focused on, but we pulled back on. And if adult use really starts to pick up steam there. Then we'll, we'll, you know, reinvest in those states. And then you look at the, the East Coast, right? I know you're talking about, you know, East Coast versus West Coast. Uh, you know, we're probably more more biased towards the East Coast, just given the ability there and, and the limited license nature of, of the of the of the states. But you know, Maryland approved uh, adult use, and it's going to turn on. They say July could be September, but you know, we're built out there. We have you know the max four dispensaries allowed, and you know, a forty thousand plus square foot facility that you know we completely built out to the Verano standards. Um, Connecticut just turned on, so we've invested in that. We have a 217,000 square foot uh, facility there, um, with a, you know, a bulk majority of that built out. And then, you know, Massachusetts and Ohio and some different areas that we we have a footprint in. Again, we're happy with the with the capacity we can bring online, but once we see adult use pick up in some of these markets, then we'll we'll continue to ship those dollars into those markets. But right now, we're very happy with our footprint, and again, that shows up in in, in what we've really been able to show from a financial uh, metrics perspective. So given all those variables and most of those being complete unknowns at this current day, is a lot of what your team does from a high-level standpoint, scenario planning and understanding that if this event occurs here, we're going to need to invest X, Y, but we're also going to need that personal available for, for this situation because it's really complex decision-making on, on, a, on a granular level, understanding that there's all these unknown variables and your team needs to be 
A, decisive, quick with resources, but also have the available capital at the time needs to invest in these markets ahead of turning on? Yeah, it's something that I think we pride ourselves in. I think we're kind of an industry leader in the ability to identify the growth opportunity and investing ahead of that. And so when you think about these investments, we're talking dollars, right? 2021, we invested $141 million in CapEx, produced $40 million of free cash flow that year. This year, we're on, on pace, and we, we guided to this on our Q3 call, um, of investing $20 million in Q4, which would put us at $130 million of CapEx for the year. That's $270 million, right? Our maintenance CapEx, which is just if we did no expansions, is around $10 million. So you can actually see the amount that we're investing back in our capacity expansion. Next year, it's going to be 25 to 50 million. So we're pulling back because of some of these dynamics. Now, where the biggest uh, challenge comes in is you can't just turn on a cultivation facility, right? It's it's not like you know a dispensary. You know you can you know throw some paint on the walls and unlock the doors and you know throw some product on the shelves and you're you're making revenue the next day. When it comes to a cultivation facility, you have to build out. Costs are skyrocketing. It used to be two, three hundred dollars per square foot, and now you're looking at four or five, six hundred dollars per square foot in certain markets. And it takes months, right? So you have to do the expansion build out, and then when you actually get your plants into the building, the first grow isn't as good as the second, isn't as good as the third. So you have to get that repetition to really get that product quality up to where you want to be at. So if you're like, okay, Pennsylvania turned on yesterday and now let me focus my on my expansion, you're probably a year behind the game. And there truly is a first mover advantage in these states. And so, you know, for us, it's it's you know, it's about bringing capacity online, but it's also about transitioning your your product portfolio as well. Like there's recessionary pressures out there. We always had uh, an idea of rolling out a, a value in a mid-tier brand. And we accelerated that given some of the supply chain dis, you know, disruptions and some of the, the pricing dynamics in the market. So now we're able to compete at an even higher level because now we have the full breadth of the, the you know flower product quality. So it's about capacity coming online, but it's also about how you transition your portfolio as well. How do you guys prevent from being reactionary, right? Like we're talking about Maryland just came online, Pennsylvania is about to come online, Florida might come online, right? So if Florida, there's a bill that comes out that might be uh, legalized adult use, same in Pennsylvania, do you guys like respond to that directly or are there other variables that you guys are weighing making the decision to invest resources to capture the Pennsylvania adult market versus the Florida market instead of being so reactionary? Yeah. So first of all, you you have to make sure that you're stabilizing your medical market because that's what we were built off of from day one. And we want to make sure that our medical patients always feel uh, the, as the top priority. And that's what we use as a base because medical patients are very consistent and they're very loyal, especially when you put up you know, the, the, the product quality and consistency that we do in our product portfolio. But when you look at a, a state like Florida, you have to work with regulators. So you have to build those relationships. You have to have an idea of movements, right? Like we're not just reading a headline. This is not one you're insinuating, but we're not just reading a headline one day and saying, oh, wait, oh, shit, uh, Florida turned on yesterday. Now we got to, like, you know, ramp up our cultivation facility. You know, he's like, Aaron, did you see this? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I probably wouldn't be employed if I missed that one. But, you know, we, uh, but I would say this, like when you look at it, you know, it's it's building the regulatory uh, relationships and having an idea of movement, right? And, 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 you know, markets definitely like to pat themselves on the back because once they start to go down the cannabis legalization route, uh, there is definitely a play up of tax revenue and, and new job creation and stuff like that. So you have a general idea, right? So you look at a state like Maryland, like we're already fully built out in that state and especially for the capacity that we want to bring online. But we have time like July, September, that's a long time for us. And so... Having that insight and hearing from the state of Maryland that they've approved adult use and now they're going to turn it on in this general time frame, then we would start to invest in that market to expand our capacity. But it's all about the relationships and it's all about having an idea of, of what that opportunity looks like. Um, and then a big thing that you know that we like to point out is is I, I can't emphasize this enough how you know Salley's backs were the lifeblood for a lot of operators in the space. It was quick money. You could go, you, you could sell off your facility for 50 million bucks. You'd get 25 million of tenant improvement allowance, 25 million of cash. Well, you have to invest those dollars, right? Like you have to justify that sale lease back. So I think that's what put a lot of the oversupply into the market, where it's like you 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 had to justify going down that path of the sale lease back. We've never gone down that route. So being self-sustaining and being able to leverage cash flow to build out your, your product portfolio, I can't emphasize enough how important that was for a company like Verano. So every dollar we invest in, in expansion of our cultivation facilities is a dollar that you know we want to put back into that market. So we're really careful to put too much supply into that market. So I would say this, it's 
It's working with regulators. It's having an idea of what the moves are going to look like. And right now, um, I would say we've done a really good job through, you know, James Leventis is, is you know, um, you know, one of the one of the best in the space, you know, government affairs and compliance. You know, there's no one that's tied into the space better than him. And we leverage our resources internally to get an idea of what those movements look like externally. So from a growth perspective, do you think investors sometimes struggle to understand the, the critical differences between, let's say, an organic growth win in a certain state versus an M&A and how the differences between those markets are from an investment standpoint and understanding kind of the growth aspect, like what it costs to get in and also what the upside could be? Uh, New Jersey was an organic win for us, right? A couple million bucks to win a license and you can do the math on it. We have a 120,000 square foot facility in Branchburg, double, triple stacked in certain areas. We have the most SKUs in the market. You know, we have three dispensaries in the central region. We're on the border of, um, you know, Pennsylvania with our Lawrence Zenleaf Lawrence facility. We're in Neptune, uh, which is by the Jersey Shore. We have a very secure location there. We're in, we're in Elizabeth, which is like you can spit on the Lincoln Tunnel from there. So now we have an organic win, costs us two million dollars, and then plus the cost to build out the facilities, and now do the, the general assumptions of what those assets are producing. Right now, you go in and you acquire those three assets in the cultivation facility. Now you're talking, you know, a hundred plus million. I mean, maybe a little bit different now, just given some of the market pricing has come down. Uh, you know, given some of the dynamics in the market, but you know, you have to justify not only a acquisition cost and then the cost of a build out versus going down the licensing route. So organic is obviously the sole focus because not only organically is a, is a, is a lower cost of entry into a market, but then we can dictate how those assets are built out. A lot of times, you know, you're going to come in and you're going to buy a, an operator and then you're going to try to you know put the Verano touch on it. Uh, very few times you come in and it's it's turnkey. I would say the alternate transaction for us, which gave us the move dispensary line down in Florida and plus the cultivation facilities I talked about, is probably as close to a Verano level cultivation facility and dispensary that we've gotten to. So, you know, when you go down the acquisition route, it's costly and then it takes time. And then, you know, you think about um, the cost of the, the acquisition and the cost of the build out. Um, it can be costly to get into certain markets and you and it can take years to really start to see those acquisitions become creative. So uh, organic is, is a slam dunk all day long. Yeah, and I think a lot of investors sometimes miss the differences on how critical those wins are, right? They recognize that you're in that state, but understanding how you got in that state and the, the type of win that was, I think, is a critical difference that I think sometimes I, I wish investors just paid more attention to those specific details. So, yeah. And I was going to say this too, just to, to add on, I mean, it costs, it, it's, you know, cash is tight. Equity valuations have come down. And so, you know, how much do you really want to dilute your stock to get into certain markets and how much cash do you want to spend? When in reality, what we should all be doing is focus on balance sheet strength, which, you know, we have the luxury of doing because we already have the capacities built out we want. Looking at trying to really generate as much cash flow as you can and, and hoarding cash, especially in times of distress. And so now you're an operator that needs to build out your footprint. Well, you know, you can't just say, I'll, you know, I'll pay you in five years and, you know, you need cash up front or you need to issue some equity. And, and again, it can be very costly, especially in times where your stock's going to be extremely diluted at these valuation levels. As we continue in these uh, really challenging capital markets, does your team put any emphasis on thinking that there could be a future opportunity where a lot of distressed assets can, could come online? Absolutely. I mean, we are always looking at how we want to expand our footprint. And you have to build those relationships. You have to continue those conversations. Um, and it's nothing that we want to do in the near term, but if the right opportunity presented itself and it made sense for our portfolio and it fit the Verano mold of what we're trying to accomplish and it could be accretive to the business, you know, we'll evaluate that. But we have the luxury of being extremely patient, right? I mean, there's operators again. I mean, when SAFE did not pass, that was a, you know, a, you know, a, a disappointment across the board. I mean, I, I would have loved to have seen the headline that SAFE passed. And, but for us, what changed when SAFE didn't pass? Absolutely nothing. Because we don't operate the business based off of assumptions of regulatory moves. There's operators that were like, like we need safe to pass. Because if safe doesn't pass, the lights are going to turn off here very quickly. And, you know, so that's the sad reality of the business is that, you know, safe has always been characterized as catering to the tier ones, giving us access to the capital and, you know, uplisting. And there's going to be uh, just a domination in the market. Well, market to market, there's certain limitations that we have to operate under. So it's not like we can come in and, and own the entire state of Illinois because there's restrictions on how many assets we can own. So what SAFE does is it actually levels the playing field. It allows the smaller operators to become much more relevant. And then it allows us to partner with them much more, uh, uh, I guess, 
efficiently. So for us, it's the tide that raises all ships concept. And I think safe not passing uh, was definitely a detriment to some of the smaller operators. And so we're going to continue to evaluate. We're in no hurry to do anything because, you know, we have the luxury of kind of sitting back and operating the 13 active states that we have right now and, and evaluating, you know, opportunities within those states as well as opportunities outside. But I would say every company is going to have a very similar response, especially the tier ones where you have to evaluate every opportunity. But, you know, we have the luxury of kind of sitting back and kind of waiting to see how that plays out. Are there other uh, obstacles in D.C. that might be more advantageous than safe banking? For example, if they change to ADE? 280E, I think, is the biggest opportunity for the space because I I don't think people truly understand what paying taxes off the gross profit line looks like for the business, right? I mean, 280E, it's amazing to me when there's all these anti-money laundering concerns and, you know, we got to be careful because it's cannabis, but you're going to overtax us and you're going to take those same dollars that you're concerned about. So it's kind of really talking out of both sides of your mouth. And so the concerns out of DC, they're abundant. And I think the biggest concern that I would have is that people truly just don't understand cannabis as a whole, right? Like you look at the farm bill that passed, CBD becomes legal, and then Delta 8 becomes you know massive in the market. And people don't understand what the chemical process is to get to delta 8. So people are like, oh, we, you know, we got to avoid cannabis because it's extremely, uh, you know, challenging of a, of a product. You got to make sure that it's safe and, you know, effective for, for the consumer. But, you know, we're going to allow delta 8 flooding in the market. And so regulators don't have a firm grasp on what can, the cannabis opportunity is. So I, I would say the challenge and the opportunity for us is to continue to have those conversations. We can't compete from a lobbying dollar perspective with pharma and alcohol and tobacco. We just can't. And those are the industries that have the most to lose if cannabis starts to become more accepted by the general uh, U.S. You know, uh, population. So for us, we've got to continue to have those conversations with regulators, make sure they understand what the opportunity is. But when you actually talk about the social equity component and helping to right a lot of wrongs that were in the industry... It's not just about the tier ones being successful. Again, it's that tide raising all ships concept where we can help out a lot of distressed communities and a lot of people who have been impacted by the war on drugs and cannabis and everything across the board, but we need help from DC. So I think while we're being kind of demonized from our operating perspective, they're actually making us stronger the longer that they actually take to push through uh, legislation. So 280E, it depends, right? Like we talk about safe passing. I don't know what safe would have looked like right? It would have been a stripped down version where we would have just had federal bank accounts or credit cards, or we don't know what it will look like. But any acceptance of cannabis at the federal level is a win. And I don't care if it was like, you know, you can get a checking account at B of A and that's it. The government and Congress has now accepted cannabis at the federal level. And so, you know, there's the glass, you know, half full, half empty concept here where we've taken the half full concept or uh, position here where when you look at it, SAFE has never gotten further than it did. You know, it didn't pass, but it never was further. It's never been more discussed. Four years ago, people didn't even know what the acronym SAFE stood for. And so now here we are, we have both sides of the the aisle talking about passing massive legislation that would, you know, would push cannabis to be accepted on the federal level. So we're disappointed, but you can't stop the way you're operating your business. We never made assumptions of SAFE. We're going to keep, you know, fighting the good fight. But in reality, it's up to us and other operators in the space to make sure that regulators understand the full opportunity of what cannabis legalization could look like, or even just a safe amendment. Is there a part of you that thinks that SAFE should have been redrafted to include descheduling? Because I've spoken with some uh, bankers and they said that even with safe, safe passing, the big, big banks like JP Morgan or Wells Fargo, they still wouldn't touch cannabis. They said that it has to be rescheduling. So do you think that that is something that needs to be uh, integrated into the next safe bill? A lot of this is just a game of telephone. I think when you look at, um, you know, safe as a standalone without any types of provisions written in there, um, probably doesn't get us a lot, right? It probably gets us again a credit card or a checking account and maybe credit cards. Because even Visa and MasterCard have come out and said, safe passing on its own doesn't mean that we're just automatically going to start allowing credit cards to uh, you know come into the space. But if you look at if credit cards were you know accepted, basket sizes go up, sales are going to go up. It just naturally happens. 280E goes away. So there's things that can happen to our space that are going to naturally cause an uptick without us having to do anything, right? So I think 
Um, I have heard that uh, descheduling, rescheduling is is a focus. If you go from a one to three, there's a higher likelihood of acceptance at the capital markets uh, perspective. But in reality, we don't know what that looks like. And banks change their mind all the time. I worked at the New York Stock Exchange and... Uh, when I was there, I actually was working on the cannabis groups. And, you know, when I was there at the time, I mean, there's nothing in the bylaws and the regulations say that they can't list us. Just because we're illegal in the state of, you know, in, in the United States doesn't mean they can't list us. They're choosing not to list us. So how do you ease those concerns? And it really is anti-money laundering and it's the, the backlash that could potentially come back onto the exchanges in these larger banks. So that's what we need to figure out. I mean, descheduling would absolutely get us everything that we would want. From, from an industry perspective. But I think you can also get creative with a safe plus like an AML provision or something that that really protects the banks from any type of backlash that would come back on. Do you think there's like a certain domino or certain company or something specific that is the catalyst to have some of these things to start falling? Or do you think it, it's just going to be a, a macro event with a, a good tide that just ends up making a big switch? I would say it's kind of to be determined. I mean, I, I, I would say where the left probably miscalculated, I think is probably the best way that I would say it, is, you know, they thought, hey, you know, we're going to get this through in the lame duck session, you know, even though there's, you know, the House is is Republican and, and Senate remained, um, you know, uh, Democrat, even within each, they're very close. So there's like, it's very you know bipartisan. It's very close from that perspective. I think they miscalculated the fact that they couldn't roll it into the NDAA and then they couldn't roll it into the omnibus. And so, you know, safe as a standalone, uh, it probably is, is where you're going to see a little bit more of a focus because when you try to lump it onto these other bills, you're just not going to get the votes. McConnell came in and said, absolutely not. You want our votes, then take this out of the omnibus bill. You know, Nancy Pelosi, you want your $60 million library in San Francisco. It's not going to happen if you put cannabis in there. And so, you know, I think there was some, you know, um, uh, considerations that had to be done on the left side. And I think they, they realized that they waited too long and then they kind of miscalculated the fact they couldn't lump it on one of these other uh, avenues. And so the, the issue comes into play is it's, you know, if you did safe as a standalone, this is one of thousands of items that Congress is going to be looking at. And so how do you make that a priority? Right. And it's, you know, the social equity component has to be addressed. There are there is a war on drugs that, you know, was uh, very overstated and, and a lot of people have been impacted. And, you know, there's a lot of right rights that, you know, are wrongs that need to be righted here. And, and we partnered, you know, with one of them, you know, the Weldon Angelos. Uh, project. Well, Ben Angelos was in jail for 13 years for holding $900 worth of cannabis. And it's just like unheard of when you start, you know, we can go story by story by story here. So that's the biggest component is when you actually think about, you know, righting a lot of these wrongs, I think social equity is going to play a, a big role in this. But then you also look at like, let's look at my old employer, the New York Stock Exchange, right? IPO proceeds are down. Uh, SPACs are defunding, and the lifeblood of that exchange is actually listing fees. And this is a slam dunk, right? If they allow cannabis companies to come flooding in, I mean, you're talking, there's a, there's a massive amount of listing fees that can come in. So it's up to us to not go to these you know, financial institutions and say, you need to consider partnering with us because it's the right thing to do. It's you have to incentivize them to say, okay, like, look, let me show you what, what this total opportunity looks like. And sometimes it's tough to get a seat at the table, but you keep pushing. And, and I think we'll we'll get to where we need need to be at some point. But what we do as an operator is you control what you can control. And that's the operations, running the business as efficiently as we can, staying ahead of that market growth. And then from my world's perspective, all focused on capital markets, you know, I have to talk to the dollars that can invest in the space right now. You have to stabilize that. You have to, you know, make sure that you're tending to the debt in the appropriate fashion. You just refi 350 million in the fall. And then you look at the new opportunities that can present themselves. You can't get caught flat-footed because another thing I'm going to lose my job over is if we see safe passes and we can uplist and I say, oh, shit, I missed that one too. And, hey, Aaron, did you see that? <laughs> yeah, did you see that? And I'll be like, oh, I forgot to read the Wall Street Journal this morning. And so I need to be ahead of that, that opportunity, right? So I think, you know, the, the basis of this conversation here, we're really looking at market growth and opportunities to position ourselves ahead of adult use, which, you know, absolutely because we're an industry leader on. 
But we're also industry leading on things that people can't necessarily see right now. It's the institutional conversations with investors that we're having. It's it's making sure that we're you know having the appropriate conversations with the exchanges and that we're not caught flat footed. And if these opportunities present themselves, like we're ready to bust through the gate and really take advantage of what the U.S. capital markets can look like. Because you know, uh, Brian, to your point, that you know, two eighty e game changing for the industry if that gets you know reversed. But then the capital markets component. When we're 96% retail traded, it is unbelievable like, you know, what a rumor on Twitter can do to your stock <laughs> and, and how much it can trade down just based off of like what the chatter is, you know, and, and I'm half my day, I feel like is spent, you know, debunking rumors that are in the market. But when you get those institutional dollars to come in, I mean, there's days that we trade under, you know, $300,000 of notional value Canadian, which is closer to, you know, $250,000. Like when I was at the CME group, it's $70 billion market cap. I mean, we had an investor there that owned 10% of the company. So that was $7 billion position that they had in one company. Now put that $300,000 of notional value into comparison with one investor putting $7 billion of their capital at work into one company. So when you think about institutional dollars coming in, it flushes out that headline noise. It stabilizes right the, the, the market that you're trading in. But what's the, what's the also kind of byproduct of this? Well, your stock price potentially becomes more valuable. Well, now your stock becomes more valuable. You can start using it more as a currency. And now you start to think about some of these distressed assets. And now you start to think about, like, we haven't been able to do much with equity, nor do we want to. We can't issue equity to raise capital at these levels. We can't, you know, necessarily look at doing, you know, M&A because, you know, we don't want to dilute our stock too much. But the byproduct, there's a trickle-down effect, right? Where it's like, you you have capital markets inclusion, institutional dollars come in, stock becomes more valuable. Now you can start using it more as currency. You can issue, you know, stock for MA. You can also raise capital and pay down. So it's just like it's a never-ending list of really what you can take advantage of once these opportunities start to present present themselves. But I can tell you day and night this is what I think about. And you know, we have you know George Arcos, who again is he's the best operator in the space, and and I want anybody to disagree with him and, and go head to head with him. And you know we have you know Darren Weiss, our COO, is an industry vet, and then you have me on the capital market side with all the relationships I have. I mean, we are looking to take advantage of every opportunity we can. So when you guys are out talking to to shareholders and potential investors, and you're kind of laying out Verano as a, a whole, what is kind of like the sexiest thing that moves the needle when you're tra- chatting with shareholders right now? It's it's you know when you look at the focus is going to shift really to to who can and can focus on free cash flow generation right and 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 for you know the bulk majority of our existence we've been free cash flow positive we've had a couple quarters down we've had some significant investments we've had to make in the business but you're going to want to to invest in an operator that has you know the the best footprint. We all have very similar footprints, and so now you have to start to to peel the layers back. So you know you look at those. And we hate, there's no other way to do the map slide. You go to an investor presentation, everyone's going to have that stupid map slide up where it's going to have like, the arrows pointing and this is dispensaries. And, but there's a lot that goes behind those numbers, right? So you look at the quality of those operations. When we think about hospitality and, and, and George opening up restaurants and bringing that mindset and that capability into the space, go to any of our Zenly dispensaries or any of the move dispensaries down in Florida, and you are going to get the best customer service. The, the lighting is going to be on point. The music is going to be on point. The products are going to be displayed appropriately. Like you're going to be in and out because we want your experience in all of, all of our locations to be uh, at, at top notch because we base our operations on what your experience is going to be because our customers are the lifeblood of everything that we do. So if you have a bad experience, that's what you're going to judge us on. And we want to make sure that even these conversations, you're going to judge me on this conversation. And we want to make sure that the last interaction you have with a bud tender, or if you're not wholesaling into a, you know, a certain dispensary, or you're talking to me that, you know, you're going to walk away with the, the best uh, opinion of Verano. So I think what sets us apart and what's going to set investors uh, or companies apart to investors is quality of operations. So don't listen to me because, of course, I'm going to say we're the best, right? Like, you know, I'm going to tell you. The data does too, right? Like, I, yeah. watch New Fr- I watch New Frontiers and Move, the Move brands are always, always in the top three in those product yeah. categories on New Frontiers data. So I'll give you a shout out for that. <laughs> keep, keep, give me some more shout outs. I'll take some here, but, you know, but, but if you look at, like, let's look at this. Let's use Florida as an example. Look at the OMMU report. 
So what yeah. people will do is they'll look at this report, they'll look at grams sold, and they'll be like, oh, well, this operator has the, the most grams sold, they must be the best. Well, we're going to say, well, that doesn't necessarily show the dollars behind those grams sold, and it doesn't show you the quality. So don't take my word for it. For again, like, you know, I can say I'm the fastest person in the world, but Usain Bolt's still going to blow me out of the water, right? I'm just going to go on record saying that I probably wouldn't uh, <laughs> be able to, to, to keep up with them. But when you look at our products, go test us out. Go look at our dispensaries. If you're in Florida, go to Move, test our products out and see the quality in your experience with those. Look at our Zen Leaf. Like, we will go head to head with anybody in the market from, you know, your experience at one of our dispensaries and our products. Are, are second to none. And when I talked about that value in that mid-tier product coming out, we've always focused on premium, right? So when you think about that premium mindset, and then you start to roll out a value in a mid-tier, this isn't garbage product that we're putting into the market. It's the same genetics. It's just the automation and the efficiency behind getting it from seed to sale is where it differentiates. So I would put our value brand up against most other operators' premium brand. So that's what we want investors to understand is that you know we are one of the best operators in the space. It shows up in our numbers, but don't believe me, come see it. And so we do a lot of facility tours. We have people come visit our dispensaries, people sample our products. Because again, I'm going to tell you how great we are all day long, but don't listen to me. Go test us out and don't tell me you're going either because I won't give you the VIP tour. I want to see if you get that VIP tour, right? So I think investors want to know that. They want to know self-sustainable nature of the business. You know, how dependent are we, right, on bringing capital and cash in, or can we actually expand ahead of these opportunities uh, on our own? What does our margin profile look like? And then you have to shape the overall industry opportunity. And so when Safe didn't pass, we kind of revamped the way that we were going to go out and market. And, you know, we, you kind of mature your investor presentation as the market develops. And if Safe passed, then we would be marketing a, a completely different way. But what we did is we took a step back and we said, okay, let's go back and look at why we're all in this space to begin with. Again, I could go work in corporate America and be bored out of my mind all day, but I see the opportunities that are that are here. And so for us, it's shaping those opportunities to the appropriate investors and making sure that you get some money that's just going to stand on the sidelines. And if you get some type of passage at the, at the federal level... It's not getting caught flat-footed, and it's people getting ready to write checks. You know, once and once and if that time comes. So, um, you know, the biggest thing for us that separates us is the conservative way that we raise capital, the efficient way that we run our business, and, and truly just you know, um, you know, the, the focus that we're going to have on and positioning ourselves ahead of growth. And you know, again, don't believe me. You know, wait till you see our. You know, uh, just listen to our quarterly numbers. Look at the numbers that we put up. Look at the operations that we have at hand. Go check out our dispensaries. Judge us based off of those variables. Because again, you know, I'm a spokesperson for the company, and and but you know, I've You're also I've worked at other I've worked at other places, and I've had opportunities to move to other places. But there's no place I'd rather be than Toronto. As frustrating as this space is, I know we have uh, the total capability to, to to really succeed in this space, and and we've been successful. So I think that's the biggest overshadowing is everyone thinks it's doom and gloom. But in reality, take away cannabis, give us inclusion into U.S. capital markets, and then have us put up our Q3 numbers and be a normal U.S.-based company. And then you'll see who wants to invest in our space. It would be, it'd be night and day difference. The way, the way I'm hearing it is like your team has all these tools locked behind in a box that you know you can use eventually. And soon you'll be able to unlock them and use them just like everyone else operates. And eventually when that happens, you should be able to be assessed kind of compared to the peers that people see on the other markets, like the tech companies, like the oil and gas companies, which will happen hopefully sooner rather than later. But I want to slightly switch gears real quick, Aaron. The internet has a working theory that cannabis executives, A, don't consume products, and B, would never consume their own products. So I got to ask, do you feel differently about that? I absolutely do. And I will fully admit in 2018, uh, beer and whiskey guy here. And uh, you know, I had pitched the opportunity to go to another tier one and help take them public. And to be honest with you, I didn't know the difference between Indica and Sativa, right? So here I am, fast forward, I now have it as part of my daily routine, right? I might not be a huge flower uh, consumer. It's probably more for, for the golf trips with my buddies, uh, you know, when we do that. But this, that's the beauty of cannabis, right? Like I think, you know, like I have uncles who think that, you know, you just got to light up a bowl and that's literally the only product form that you can have. But if you don't know your product, then you can't sell your product. And so for me, I know our product from A to Z. And we also want to have products that can tailor 
to any lifestyle and people from all different demographics. If you're down in Florida and you want to improve your golf game, you have a you know an ACL tear in your right shoulder, well, go get some of our you know pain balm. And if you're a, a connoisseur and you know your stuff and you can tell the differences between terpene profiles, then you know we have that premium level product for you there. But I would say um, you know I would be a hypocrite if I'm out here pitching the best product. Uh, and not being a, a consumer. Um, uh, I haven't before this podcast, so I want to go on record to say that... Uh, <laughs> we're we're going to edit that part out. talking about now, but um, it's a part of your daily routine. It helps you fall asleep. It helps you relax. You can have fun on it. You can... There, there is a product category uh, for every for every lifestyle, but there's also a lot of opportunity to continue to evolve and adapt that portfolio. So our R&D program, looking at beverages, looking at everything across the board is fully up and running. Now go back to the self-staining and being able to invest dollars back into the portfolio. We have the luxury of being able to invest in R&D as well. So I would say um, if you don't understand your product, you can't operate an efficient business. And so I would say everybody in our company is fully aware of what the product quality is. And it's not even just our product. It's it's product. You have to know what your competitors' products are like as well. So you go to different dispensaries. You see what those experiences are like. You see what the you know the, the product quality of, of different uh, uh, cannabis companies are. And you know I might not have you know uh, ten eights in front of me, and I'm you know rolling up each one and trying to figure out you know what the different levels are. But we do have people that do product testing all day long. So you know we're very in tune to what our product uh, quality is and. Um, I can tell you personally, uh, uh, there's not uh, a competitor product in my in my portfolio just because I know I'm always going to get the best quality uh, coming from Toronto. What is one aspect operating the cannabis industry that would surprise or shock others to know? Surprise or shock others? Um, you know, I would say you know the ability to adapt, right? I think people don't really understand the layers that we have to encounter every day, and so when you think about Staying ahead of those opportunities, like it, it's it's tremendously challenging to operate what's available, but then continually level up. And so, I would say the adaptability of not only the executive team, but you know our employees at all levels. Again, we're all steering the ship in the right direction. So, I would say adaptability is probably the biggest thing that people don't maybe understand is that like you know you can't ever get into cruise control in this space. So, I would just say. Always being able to take advantage of the opportunities that are ahead of you. So, what scenario keeps you up at night? Regulation all day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, how, how long do we have? Because I can talk about quite a few other things. But um, I would say this I would say regulation keeps us up because of the uncertainty of it. And it's the one thing that, like, if people could just get out of our way, uh, and, and we had a clear path of how we could operate and, and, and really invest back into the business ahead of growth is, is, is one thing. But regulation is something that keeps me up. Um, you know, and I would say this too. I mean, you know, it doesn't keep me up, but it's something that we really want to focus on is, you know, culture in our company is very important. And so you, know, you want to make sure that you don't get caught in the weeds where I'm so focused on making sure that we're positioned ahead of uplisting and institutional dollars and all this stuff across the board where you're not showing gratitude back to your employees. Because at the end of the day, you're, you're developing careers, you're making sure that people feel that they're a part of the ride and the journey. Um, so we definitely want to make sure that we're never overlooking employees and giving people plenty of opportunity to, to excel uh, and, and, and really succeed here. And um, I think if you interviewed uh, a lot of our, our employee base, they would realize they would tell you the same thing is that you know we're focused on career development and making sure that we understand how much we appreciate them. So I'd say it doesn't keep me up at night, but it's definitely something that we need to be focused in on. But regulation all day long. You know, if Schumer and Booker are involved in any part of your business, you should probably not sleep. So and you can tell me I said that. <laughs> yeah, I'll make sure to DM them that. <laughs> when you got started in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? Cannabis space. So you're talking about me personally when I got uh, started. So listen, you know, in my world, capital markets uh, depend. It doesn't matter what investment banks you you use. I would say that what I got right was being able to institute a blueprint for investor relations and you know treasury and 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 layering on how we need to do business the right way. Now, what you get wrong is you make assumptions. And so, 2018, I just assumed we were going to use ComputerShare as our, uh, you know, our, our transfer agent. And you know, I 
called up my contact there and they hung up the phone on me. And then, then, then you start to have a few oh shit moments. And then you're like, wait, every vendor that I used to work with isn't available to me. So I would say the assumption aspect in 2018 is really, I think a lot of us got, you know, we had to work very closely. And you don't really share a lot of trade secrets with, with your competitors, but we all had to come together and, and A, keep each other sane, but then also say, okay, I'm using this vendor. You should do this, this website vendor, you know? So I'd say assumptions are probably the biggest mistake we made, but you know, then you think about my transition over to Murano it, without a hitch, like, you know, every box was checked and everything was ready to go. Cause we went public a little bit later than, than the other uh, peers in, in our, in our peer set. Before we do predictions, we ask all of our guests, if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation, what would it be? Take on opportunities like this, right? Corporations in America pay you to give up on your dreams. And, and so when you look at the cannabis space, we're a, a billion-dollar startup company. And everybody feels like they're an owner in this company. And, and so for me personally, it's like, I'm invested in cannabis, but I'm even now more aggressive on what I could do on my own and, and how I could invest in different industries and, and start to look from that, that perspective. So I would say just the pure sense of ownership of this company is just the most appealing aspect to this. Because again, there's nothing wrong with working in corporate and there's nothing wrong with trying to get a pension and, and going to work and knowing what to expect you know, day by day. But there is so much opportunity in this space. And I will say, and I know this across the board because you know we're very close with a lot of companies, if you come in and you're smart and you're aggressive and you and you work hard, most likely that's going to be recognized. And you might be hired for X, but then opportunities Y and Z present themselves and you're going to get pulled into that. Because again, as these companies develop and grow, opportunities can continue to present themselves. So I would say there's not an industry in this space right now, not even just in this space, but just in general where a person can come in and have that startup feel and as many opportunities as they do. So I wouldn't change it for the world. I, if I went back to U.S. corporate, I would be tremendously bored and I, I, I wouldn't survive. I, I don't even know if my khakis fit me anymore. So I, I, you know, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll see. Well said. All right, prediction time. Aaron, we're sitting here a year from now. What does the cannabis landscape look like? What has changed for the good or the bad? So for the good, um, you just naturally assume that Washington is going to have more and more conversations about some form of, of legislation. So that's good. The more conversations you have, the more you can push, the more we can get in front of regulators and financial institutions, I would say, uh, would be good. I would say you're going to look at markets, continue to either adopt an adult use program and or turn on, right? So Maryland is scheduled to turn on within the year. Now, there's no guarantees on that. And again, we'll, we'll stay ahead of that. Um, you know, the bad, uh, I would say is just, you know, kind of the norm and, and you're going to, you're, you're going to see, you know, potential for consolidation in the space as operators become more and more distressed. You know, it's kind of like both sides of the fence that's good and bad. So, you know, bigger operators would have the ability to, you know, potentially add to the portfolio and expand their footprint. But that means that some of these distressed assets have to get out of the business and, and that's bad. And so again, we don't want that scenario, right? Like we want everyone to be successful in the space. So I would say the negative is just kind of the same, but I would say the prediction would be, you know, you, you potentially will see consolidation in the space. Um, but I do think you're going to see more conversation around some form of legislation. And I think you're also going to see, you know, a rescheduling or descheduling or something along those lines pick up some steam as well. Challenge. Uh, a year from now, I think New York will have opened their fourth. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> like also maybe. <laughs> it might, it looks like might, might be up to about 10,000 dispensaries by then. So who knows? But, uh... <laughs> uh, no, a year from now, I'm going to be positive. I think that New York kind of gets it together, honestly, from the East Coast perspective. I do think Maryland has legal sales. But I think California, I think this year is going to be a huge consolidation on the entire West Coast, not just California. And I think that by this time next year, you'll start to see signs of the opportunity that everyone was excited about in California when it first came legal. I think that you're going to get a lot of bad actors that kind of leave the state. It's going to get a lot cleaner from a regulatory environment, I hope. And then that's going to create this opportunity for these larger entities to go in and actually have success in, in, these, in that market, right? So I think that that will happen. And I do think from a regulatory standpoint, there's going to be at least 
maybe one bill kind of being talked about that is going to kind of change the landscape of banking and taxes and those kind of things. I don't think it'll be passed probably till the summer of 2024 is my guess. I'm going to stick with my prediction that if you are a small operator or even a tier two organization, if you can survive until 420, 2024, I think that you really have the the generational wealth opportunity. You know what I mean? So uh, that's my opinion. What, what do you think, Brian? Obviously, anything New York based is pretty triggering for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I unfortunately don't think New York will have it together at this time next year. And I think next year or the following year will be the year of lawsuits. And I'm expecting there to be a bunch of lawsuits coming down the pipe. One, I think interstate commerce actually happens, whether that's the three states that they've talked about kind of all being in agreement and hoping that the federal government just stays out of the way. I think that could be a critical one. I also think there will likely be some lawsuits here in New York in order to open up the opportunities because I think the dormant clause has shown that there are chances that things could be done slightly differently. And uh, I'm hopeful that by this time next year, New York has done a different job. So Aaron, for our listeners, they want to get in touch, they want to learn more, and they want to buy Verano products. Where can they find you? So um, our, our main national uh, dispensary brand is Zenleaf. Uh, that'll be in the 12 markets outside of Florida. Florida is Move, M-U-V. Uh, our products uh, range from Verano uh, to Encore to the Move product down in Florida to Avexia. Uh, you can find uh, more information at verano.com. You can go to investors.verano.com. You can invest uh, investors at verano.com is actually the email address if you want to get in touch with me or my department. Uh, ticker symbol VRNO on the CSE. And if you're US-based and have uh, you know, a discount brokerage, you can go VRNOF on the OTC market. Uh, and if you go to verano.com, there'll obviously be much more information on product uh, uh, selection and, and, and dispensaries and whatnot. We'll link those up in the show notes. This was fun. Thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humiston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.